looking forward to D6 in my own home. Uh, one of our twins, we've got twin boys that are four and a half years old. Uh, the older twin, Sawyer, uh, we got two of the D6 shirts, right, when they were kind of handing out shirts, selling shirts a couple months ago, one for each twin. Uh, one of the twins wears whatever. Sawyer, uh, since we have two shirts, makes sure that every day of the week he can wear kind of a D6 shirt that he's got. So even just this morning, completely unprompted, Carrie tells me, Sawyer walks down, uh, down our, from our second floor down into the laundry room on our main floor uh, in his pajamas, gets in the dirty laundry, I th- I'm guessing the dirty laundry, finds his D6 shirt, puts it on because there's not one clean. So, so we have a walking advertisement for, for D6 right now with a dirty shirt, but, but, but he's looking forward to it. He loves it. Carrie and I are looking forward to, 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 to the interaction that we'll get with other parents of kids that are about our age, all that sort of stuff. So, so let me just reinforce everything that Rob said about how much we're looking forward to D6 starting up here in 59 days or whatever, whatever it is. Well, this summer we're taking a few weeks to, to do a series called Life Verse, where, where those of us up front preaching and teaching are talking about small passages, of, small passages of Scripture that have had a big impact on us individually. Now, stick around Brookside long enough, and, and you'll learn that we think all of Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. So, so these verses that we're talking about, they're not extra inspired or anything like that. They don't belong on a coffee mug necessarily any more than the rest of the verses do. But what we also want you to know as a church is, is what Jeremiah 23 talks about, where it describes God word, God's word as a hammer, or what Hebrews 4 talks about, where it says God's word is living and active. There should be times, Brookside, when, when certain verses kind of take, take on a life of their own, rise off the surface, surface of the page, and become especially important for us individually. Maybe these verses communicate a truth that you just resonate with and love. Maybe these verses express, maybe they put into words who you want to be or who you want to become. Or maybe these verses just come alongside you at a very meaningful time of your life, a very relevant time of your life, and they minister to you in a unique way. This morning, I'm excited to be able to share one of those verses that has kind of taken on a life of its own in my life, so it has the status of one of my life verses. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, God, I, I do thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that you have chosen to give us your word so that we might know you and might know your son. And God, my my request this morning is that your word would just prove to be exactly what you promised to be in our lives this morning, living and active and breathed out by you for us. So Jesus, open our eyes so we might see wonderful things in your word. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for loving us first, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to front load things a little bit and start off with, with a story of my life growing up. We'll do some autobiography type stuff. It's a life verse, so I get that liberty, I think, right? I grew up in a home where I had a whole lot of exposure to God's word. Some of my earliest memories, probably when I was four, five, six years old or so, 
are me coming into the kitchen of the house I grew up in and seeing my parents sitting at the, at the table with a bowl of cereal in front of them and, and their Bible spread out before them as well. From the earliest days that I remember, I, re, I recall my parents valuing God's word so much they started their day by reading it. We did family devotions. Uh, my older two brothers and I, uh, my, my, my parents led us in that, where I'm sure they did it imperfectly. I don't know how often we did it, but, but they did it enough that I, I remember them making it a priority in our lives growing up, at least through elementary school, where they would read scripture with us or read books that would help push us into scripture. We were that family that was at church probably every time the doors were open. We were here on Sunday mornings, not just for big church, but for Sunday school as well, both of those. So it was like a full morning commitment. Once upon a time, they used to have church on Sunday nights. We were there on Sunday nights. We were there on Wednesday nights for kids programming. The doors were open. We were there. I'm so grateful now, in retrospect, for all those opportunities I had to get exposed to God's word. I, I see the fruit of that in my life now, I think. But I didn't always appreciate that sort of exposure the way I do now. For a whole lot of years, family devotions were something I kind of got through as quickly and painlessly as possible. I knew when to speak up to say the right words. I knew when not to speak so that way things could progress along towards whatever was after that. I, I was that kid that had it manipulated, right? That's not the way you should approach family devotions, kids, by the way. Church, I would come uh, in church. My parents wouldn't let me sleep. I'd like put my head on my mom's shoulder and she'd like do the, do the shoulder thing so I couldn't fall asleep. But, but I would look at, at the pictures in my kid's Bible or the maps at the end to get through the sermon. There was nothing uniquely special about this book to me. Now, I, I knew the right things to say. I could appreciate it with the words of my mouth, but my actions and my attitude showed that I thought it was just like any other book. I could approach it casually, I could keep it at arm's length, and I'd be fine. But then my sophomore year of high school, a whole lot of things converged in my life in a short period of time. And to, to summarize things, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, took root in my life in some fresh ways. John Alford was my youth pastor back then. I grew up attending Brookside, and once upon a time, he was a youth pastor. He was my youth pastor. He saw what was going on in my life. And so John started to pour a lot of his time into me. And so I remember the summer after my sophomore year, uh, some day during the week, he had taken me out for lunch, and we, we came back to the church building. All of this hadn't been built yet, so we were up on the far other end of the building in what's now the hub, the old sanctuary. For those of you who have been here a long time, you can, you can probably picture that with me. So he, he brought me into the old sanctuary. He sat me down and he said, Tim, if you want to keep leaning into the things God seems to be doing in your life, you've got to get your nose in this book. You, you can't keep growing apart from this book. You can't be fully used by God apart from this book. And so he sat me down on one of the blue pews that was cool in 1982, sat me down there, gave me one of the Bibles that was at the church, a pen, a piece of paper that had a couple questions on it, but a whole lot of blank space, and he said, Tim, go to the book of Habakkuk. 
I have no idea to this day why he sent me to the book of Habakkuk. That's not where I would send pretty much anybody who is just starting to read God's word. For those of you that are new to the Bible, it's this kind of small, kind of obscure book in the second half of the Old Testament. If you're not looking for it, it's tough to find it, sort of book of the Bible. But he said, Tim, go to Habakkuk chapter 1 and start writing down everything you see. Observations, questions, things you think are cool, things that don't make any sense to you, things that stand out to you, anything and everything, just spend 30 minutes in one chapter, keep writing. And those 30 minutes, in those 30 minutes, I should say, my approach to God's word changed dramatically. I went from black and white to color, from Kansas to Oz, you know, from from 2D to 3D, however you want to say it. I was hooked on God's word. I realized that this this thing, nothing had changed about it, but but my approach to it had, and it suddenly became not just a thing, but, but this thing that was living and active and shaped me. I started to come to this book hungry for its message every time I opened it up. I was motivated not to read it casually, but to dig into it. I learned that there are riches here that we'll miss if we skim over God's word. And ever since those days in high school, one of the things that drives my life in my ministry is just getting people close enough to this book that they experience its warmth and meet its author and value it, realize how precious it can be. And now, looking back, High school was a long time ago. (laughs) Looking back, I realized that I had just discovered that sophomore year of high school what Psalm 119 is already all about. Here's what it is. Nothing matches the worth of God's word. Nothing matches the worth of God's word. Psalm 119, it's made up of 176 verses. That's a lot. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. This chapter is longer than a whole lot of other books in God's word. And in all but a handful of these 176 verses, in almost all of them, the psalmist mentions something about God's word. It's on his brain. He just can't not think about it. And one of, the, one of those threads that, that, that finds its way throughout throughout so much of what the psalmist says about God's word, is that that it's supremely valuable. Let me say it again the way I just said it a minute ago. Nothing matches the value, the worth of God's word. Now, whenever you make absolute statements like that, that, that catches us off guard. We're not supposed to use nothing and anything, right? So when I, when I say that nothing matches the worth of God's word, some of you are shifting a little uncomfortably in your seat. How can I say that, right? I mean, don't I know that there are people out there that think this book is offensive, regressive, contradictory? Yeah, I, I get that. And, and hear me say, those are important things to think about. But, but for this morning, for, for 20 minutes or so that I've got left, let me reframe things, at least for now, and, and let me suggest that, that we can talk about history 
and archaeology and culture and the meaning of individual passages. We can talk about those all day long. I love doing that, by the way. But, but I've done that enough to know that we can talk about those all day long, and, and I can maybe even start to convince you about some of the things that you're bumping up against as you approach this book. But even if I convince you that this book is more historically reliable than you thought it was, or maybe if I convince you that certain passages that you thought were contradictory, maybe they aren't that way when they're properly understood, even if I could do all that, it's entirely possible that this book could still remain just an object to you, just a specimen, maybe an interesting specimen, but just this thing to be studied. Now, now we can return to those questions you've got later on, after this morning. But for this morning, I, I want to start out, out by saying, if we don't see that there's a whole other way to approach God's word, we can answer those questions and still end up in a wrong spot. And so, so the psalmist, what he does is he pushes us towards the value of God's word. So this morning, I just want to let the psalmist speak for himself and ask us that we would give him the same grace that we would ask, that we just press pause on our questions, and let him speak for himself for a few minutes. And I think that as we do that, we will see the worth that can be found in God's word. And so here's how we're going to move forward. We've already heard Psalm 119 is all about God's word. There's no way we're going to try to cover 176 verses. So for those of you that are thinking that, breathe a sigh of relief. But instead, we're we're, we're going to swing to the other end, and we're going to look at just one verse. Verse 16, this is, this is one of those verses that's taken on that life of its own, life verse sort of thing for me. But I think this verse can, can take a lead in directing us throughout the rest of the psalm in a way that's, that's consistent with everything the psalm says about the value of God's word. And so let's go to Psalm 119, verse 16. That's where we're starting. Psalm 119, verse 16, God's word says, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect. Some of your translations say, I will not forget your word. So so let's keep that slide up there. Two very straightforward halves to the psalm, right? First half talks about delight. Second half talks about the attention God's word deserves. And as we think about the value of God's word, both of those halves, delight and attention, are important for us to see. Because, because, if, if I were going to follow somebody around for a week, I could tell them what they value based on what they delight in and what they devote their attention to. Give me a week, I can, I can see what you delight in, what you give your attention to, I'll, I'll tell you what you value. So if we're going to value God's word, these two categories, delight and attention, are two categories that we need to hone in on. So, so let's dig in. First, first half we see that God's word is a source of delight. God's word is a source of delight. Let that sink in for a second. God's word is a source of delight. For most of us, that doesn't compute. When we think of what what God's word is or what it's supposed to do to us, we, we probably conjure up pictures of, of a serious face or study or hopefully we think of, of, of changed lives. But delight? That's probably not on the short list 
of how most of us would say, this book is, is supposed to shape us. And yeah, that's, that's exactly where the psalmist goes. He points us towards delight. And so, so the question I ask as I read this is why? Why can this book be a source of delight? How can we get there? And as we look around just Psalm 119, we see the answer, or at least an answer that the psalmist will give us. He says we can delight in this book because of everything that it offers to us. And so this morning, I want to take just a, a few minutes, and let's just go where, where the passage leads. Let's look around Psalm 119 and see a number of benefits. We'll, we'll look at four. You can find more on your own later. Look at four benefits that we get from God's word. These benefits should drive us towards delight. So one benefit is that God's word offers freedom. Look with me at that top line again. God's word offers freedom. This is another one of those statements that, that challenges how we think. Because we come to God's word and we think, God's word, restrictive. Me doing what I want, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. Me being a master of my own universe, that's what's liberating. But the psalmist says you have it exactly backwards. Look at verse 133. He says up there on the screen, direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin what? Let no sin rule over me. To the psalmist, sin wasn't liberating. To the psalmist, sin, it just exercised its own sort of, of demanding rule over us. You talk with any addict, and they'll tell you this. They know this. Talk with a family of any addict, they know this, that sin exercises its own sort of rule. Sin isn't freeing it rules us, but we don't have to swing that far to realize the confining effects that sin can have. Because even if we wouldn't consider ourselves addicted to stuff, we still know that certain things, even if I do it the way I want to do it, how I want to do it, when I want to do it, certain things still have their hooks in us, right? But then look at how the psalmist approaches freedom. So if, if, if sin is confining, look at verse 45, where the psalmist says, I will walk about in freedom. That's what we want, right? That's what we all want. We all want freedom. Freedom not to do whatever we want, but freedom to be who we are designed to be. How do we do that? Second part of the verse. For I have sought out your precepts. So for us Americans who think, that us being the master of our, un our own universe is liberating, God's word is confining, the psalmist comes al alongside us and says, no, you actually have it backwards. Following God's word makes your life bigger, better, what it's supposed to be. It's sin that will confine you. Sin brings shackles all its own. I think most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, know that. God's word offers freedom. Another benefit is that God's word, it offers stability. Let me just read those verses that are up there on the screen for you. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Do you see what that's saying? Do you see the stability that God's word offers there? If your law had not been my delight, 
I would have perished. Verse 114, you are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. And then verse 165, great peace have those who love your law and nothing can make them stumble. Let's just, let's just look at a few of those words that we see in that psalm. Shield, refuge, hope, peace. All of these things underline the stability that God's word offers to us. God's word keeps us anchored to God himself and to his promises when the waves of our life hit hurricane force. I've seen this. I've seen God's word play that stabilizing role in people's lives. I'm a pastor, and so I spend a fair amount of time in counseling type settings. And I spend a fair amount of time in hospital rooms. And in a whole lot of those situations, I'm trying to minister by the grace God gives to people who have just had the bottom drop out of their lives. We're not talking American suffering of, I had to wait five minutes in a drive-thru for a Happy Meal sort of suffering. We're talking legitimate suffering here, where, where people's lives are turned upside down and you can't snap your fingers and make it right. But you know what I found? I've seen people, even in the middle of these worst of circumstances that we wouldn't wish on anyone, I've seen them continue to look to God in trust and faith. How do they do it? This word guides their hope because they know the hope we have because of Jesus. They know the ways God has shown love for us. They know that God comes alongside them in their suffering because God sent his own son to die for us. So God can relate to the most intense suffering that we have. And so the question we, have, we eventually need to ask ourselves is this, are, are we going to let God's word play the stabilizing influence in our lives? Or are we going to look to, to circumstances for that? And Brookside, with, with whatever cred- credibility I might bring to you this morning, let, let me encourage you, because I've seen it go both ways, let me encourage you to, to plant your anchor, to, to, to drop your anchor in God's word. The hope, the peace, the refuge, the shield that this can be. Third benefit, we've got to start flying here, folks. So, um, Otherwise, like the people in the tech booth come up and tase me if I go too far over. So we don't want that. Another benefit, God's word offers direction. I'm just going to read these verses. They're straightforward. You'll get it. Verse 66, teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I trust your commands. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light on my path. You see the direction God's word gives? And then verse 130, the unfolding of your word gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. Clear enough. Another benefit, last one I'll talk about this morning, is that God's word offers us God himself. God's word offers us God himself. Verse 10, I seek you with all my heart. 
Do not let me stray from your commands. We cannot separate seeking God from his commands and obedience to them. They go hand in hand. Verse 137. You are righteous, Lord, and your laws are right. Do you see how God's character is made manifest in his word there? And then verse 175, let me live that I may praise you. And what's part of that? And may your laws sustain me. This is important. God's word is the primary way God has chosen to reveal himself to us. No, this book isn't an end in itself. Hear me say that. But at the same time, hear me say that we've got to come to terms with the fact that if we want to know God, grow in Christ-likeness, be used by him, we can't do so apart from this book. It's how God has chosen things to work. And so here's what we do with all this. These benefits, they translate into motivation to read God's word. Because when we hear somebody delight in something, in the latest movie they've watched, in the restaurant they went to last night, or whatever else, it draws us in a little bit, doesn't it? And when we hear all of the reasons the psalmist delights in this book, that should draw us in. That's why whenever I kind of finish a book of the Bible that I'm reading through, it's common for me to just spend a few days back in Psalm 119 before I jump into whatever book is next, because I need to stir my motivation to keep my nose in this book. Psalm 119 does it. Okay, let's go back to the second half of the verse. We're going to pick things up a little bit more and go through this more quickly, but we've seen the delight piece. I delight in your decrees. The second half of the verse says, I will not neglect your word. This shows us that God's word captures our attention. It certainly did for the psalmist. Again, 176 verses, almost all of them, talking about God's word. He can't not think about God's word. It so filled his mind. And so, so with a little bit of time I've got, I just want to get tactical for a minute. Let's get very practical and say, if God's word deserves our attention, if God's word is going to capture our attention, what does that look like? Here's one thing that this means. It means if God's word is going to capture our attention, our attention, we make time to read it closely and not just casually. Now, you can't read four chapters a day closely all the time, you know? Uh, there are times when I, just, when I just read God's word in big chunks and don't sit down with a pen and paper. So, so hear me say that. But there should also be times when we slow down, get laser focused on a verse or a small set of verses and say, okay, what does this mean? It is the difference between speedboating across a lake and scuba diving into it to explore all of the different riches. The psalmist talks about meditating on God's word a lot in this psalm. That's what he's doing. He's scuba diving into God's word to see everything there that's beneath the surface that draws us in. And so so this morning, I just want to throw out three questions for us to ask when we approach God's word. If we're going to read this book closely, we need to ask good questions of it. And then as we answer these questions and just kind of turn them over in our brain throughout the day, we we just naturally find ourselves meditating on God's word. So so if I was sitting down with you at a coffee shop saying, here's the place to start with studying God's word, reading it closely, 
asking the right questions, here are the three I would throw out first, mention to you first. First question, what does the passage say? This seems like an obvious question, but it's easy to pass it up. But with this question, as we approach whatever chapter we're looking at in God's word, we look for who's mentioned, where places that are mentioned, things that are repeated, verbs, uh, cause and effect, contrast. We, we just notice what's actually there. And I think when we stop to look around God's word enough, we'll, we'll see that there's a whole lot of scenery that we pass by when we, when we read it too quickly or in a way that shows, oh, I'm familiar with it, I can skim this. No, there's, there's riches here, Brookside. So we want to ask, what does the passage say? Then we move, second question, what does the passage mean? Here's where we say, what does the gospel writer, or, or, or Paul, or Peter, or, or James, or Moses, or whoever, what are they trying to say in this passage they're writing? A lot of times, just from from observation, we can answer that question, but there are times when we need to surround ourselves with the wisdom of our community group and the wisdom of people who have studied God's word for a long time, but we don't want to neglect the question, what does this passage mean? And then finally we say, I've got the message, now what does it mean for me? Not what does it mean to me, that's different. To me, that's too individualistic, that's too relativistic, but what does it mean for me reminds us that God's word should be shaping us. Application, folks, is what I'm getting at here. If we read God's word, say, hmm, that's an interesting message, close it, and then don't live our lives any differently, we've completely missed it. And The book of James has some stuff to say about that too, by the way. We we don't want to become those sort of people. We are continually being shaped by this book, but we need to read it closely for that to happen. Okay, second thing, if this book deserves our attention, we need to follow where Scripture points. We need to go where it leads. We're just going to jump right to John 5.39. Jesus, in in this passage, is talking to religious leaders, dudes who know their Old Testament crazy well. But look at what he says. He says, you, you, you religious leaders, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But no, Jesus says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. So these guys that Jesus is talking to, leave that up there. They study the scriptures closely. They're they're doing the diligent thing. But Jesus says, that's not enough. You're pressing the gas pedal down, but you're going the wrong direction. Jesus says, these these scriptures testify about me. And so eventually, we need to appreciate the fact we shouldn't read this, this book for too long without making one of the things we come back to as part of our framework. What does this teach me about Jesus? Why I need him? what he came for, how I live in light of him today, all of these things that shows that the gospel is rich. What Jesus came to accomplish for us is rich. But so we, so we go where scripture leads, and then, and then last thing, if scripture is going to get our attention, eventually we close our Bibles and we get on mission. And let me, let me explain this carefully so I don't get too many emails afterwards. We need scripture to shape every part of our mission. Part of the definition of, of how I define the church is, is we're a people that is, that is shaped by God's word. 
but we also need to hear that we are a people sent by God's word. And so the thing that I want to stress this morning is, is that the picture of spiritual maturity we should have isn't you sitting in a study room somewhere with a Bible, a highlighter, and a candle. Because I guess you need a candle in there too. But th- that's not the ultimate picture of spiritual maturity. Yes, the Bible draws us in and fills us up, but the Bible also sends us out on the same mission that Jesus came to start and that he sends us on in John chapter 17. We need to get on mission And so we don't just spend every day of the week in Bible study. Bible study is great. I lead some of those here at Brookside. I'll talk it up all day long. But eventually, we close our Bibles and go across the street or talk to the guy in the cubicle next door on the cubicle farm, whatever it might be. Eventually, we close our Bibles, get on mission. I'm so grateful that every year, pretty much every year, I get the chance to travel to Zambia and, and rub shoulders with 16 or 20 pastors who model this approach to Scripture for me. I've been going there for about six years. I go there to teach them some Bible content, but every year I'm the one that gets schooled in Bible approach. Because get this, a lot of these pastors travel more than 100 kilometers to come to the pastor's training. This isn't, this isn't a by car train, bus, anything like that. Most of the distance is walked or bicycled. They hitch a ride when they can, but it's effort to get there. And then once they're there, for eight or nine hours a day, they sit on picnic tables, they sit on picnic benches while we teach them. I can't sit on a bleacher for 30 minutes without getting uncomfortable. They do it for eight or nine hours a day, all week. They sleep in a room that's about 16 foot by 16 foot. Not one room per guy, all 20 guys in that 16-foot by 16-foot room. And the reason they do all of this is because convenience is secondary to the value they place on God's word. Americans would be complaining in that sort of, that sort of environment after 30 minutes. I would, but these guys, because they know how central the Bible has to be to their lives, their marriages, their families, their ministries, comfort is secondary. Convenience is secondary. The most important thing is that they get into this book. It's life to them. And so on the plane ride home, each year I ask myself, what would it look like for me to approach God's word the way those 20 pastors approach their Bibles? Brookside, what would it look like for us to approach God's word the way they approach their Bibles, individually during the week, but then also when we gather on Sunday mornings to hear it preached and taught. How can we get that motivated and, and believe that we need it enough that we come hungry and give it our close attention? The answer is in Psalm 119. We realize that everything the Scripture offers to us is motivation to delight in it, and then we give it our close attention. My prayer is that that's true of me and true of us together as a church. Now Rob and the team are going to come out and they're going to lead us in a song that, that's kind of our prayer of response to this message. A while ago, a couple of years maybe, Rob wrote a song directly out of Psalm 119. We've heard it before, so you're familiar with it. But this morning, I just want our, our prayer to be this song in response to everything we've seen from God's word. 
after the song will get up and lead us through communion. But let's respond to the value of God's word by song first.